This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We all know how important supportive housing projects are in BC. They are a way to provide much-needed housing for seniors and others in need. But back in 2018... The NDP government pushed forward with such a project in Maple Ridge, Royal Crescent Modular Housing, this despite the concerns of many Maple Ridge residents, those who already had housing. Since that time, there have been numerous challenges there, crime, over a dozen deaths, and some negative impacts on the community and the businesses in the area. Good intentions, but what's gone wrong? Well, let's bring in Maple Ridge City Councillor Ahmed Youssef. Thanks so much for joining us. And do I have it right? Are we looking at some major challenges? What went wrong, Ahmed? Good morning, and thank you for having me. It's um, it's unfortunate that here we are uh, this many years later after 2018. And unfortunately, what the community members and, and business owners and operators in the vicinity of uh, this particular facility their concerns have come to to fruition, have come true. It was uh, really disappointing to see the impact, not only on the immediately adjacent neighborhood where you have a daycare that's kitty corner from there that's really been struggling to make sure that their clients and, and the children and the families that are frequenting their establishment are safe, but also this is one of three Uh, facilities that now exist in Maple Ridge that quite, uh, if you look at a map, they dot our downtown area. And uh, and we have a recognizable four by six block downtown core. Uh, Our businesses are predominantly, you know, privately owned right here, Maple Ridge raised and grown types of businesses. Uh, Ultimately, what's called mom and pop shops. Uh, that are trying to put food on the table and are trying to make sure that their families are looked after. And they've had issues with vandalism, uh, human excrement, uh, discarded paraphernalia, some of their clientele being harassed and and aggressively panhandled. Uh, You can't go through the downtown core of Maple Ridge without seeing the fallout effects of these supportive housing facilities. Uh, it's not that uh, something has gone wrong. It's actually what was promised has been delivered. What was promised was housing, and thus far it's been housing only. Uh, we don't see, as the community, the supportive aspect of it that's meant to drive individuals in the direction of detox, of, of treatment, of uh, ultimately changing their lifestyle and coming out of the grips of addiction into being a productive member of of our community. Instead, it's simply a roof 
over people's head, which we can all agree is, is desperately needed for, for many of us, especially and specifically, as you said, seniors and, and single family, uh, single parent families. Uh, however, when we're placing supportive housing of this type uh, without the wraparound services that do provide for a, a better outcome for individuals, it has a significantly negative effect on on those that are around it. The seniors that live in that vicinity have had to suffer with all kinds of uh, you know things that from uh, ambulances coming at, at all hours of the day to to deal with uh, overdoses to individuals losing their lives right on their front doorsteps uh, to again the the criminal aspects that are that surround. Uh, this type of behavior where you have break-ins, uh, again, the... You know, okay, Ahmed, let me just uh, slow you down there for a second. Uh, we have to take a look at the need for supportive housing. Would you say that going back to 2018, when this came about to Maple Ridge, and it was imposed on Maple Ridge by the government, lots of people yelling and demanding it not come in, but would you say there was a need to house the homeless in Maple Ridge? Was that a reality? That certainly was a reality. How we go about it is where the the problem or the failure has occurred. Uh, you can't lump all individuals under the label of homeless. You have individuals that are struggling with severe mental health issues that do need um, that professional level of care. You have other individuals that are in the grips of addiction that need that treatment and detox it, you know, it, it, as soon as we can provide it. And then you have individuals that are simply there because of socioeconomic reasons whereby they're uh, looking for their a job or have fallen on hard times financially and, and they find themselves where they are. So looking at those basic three groups or breakdown of, of the homeless, quote unquote, uh, label, we can easily see that there are different levels of needs. Lumping people together, putting in the supportive housing facilities, as they're called, where it's simply housing, and bringing in people at, that are trying to get out of addiction while people are actively using and in some cases even manufacturing the drugs right next door to them is not helping those that want to recover their lives and want to come out of, of the addiction. So this is where the failure has been, is that it, it actually has served as its uh, own ecosystem to promote that vicious cycle further. Okay, so if there is a lesson here for other communities around the province, five years later, after 2018, when this came in, what could have been done, what should have been done? Uh, well, the location, first and foremost, was opposed by the community members as well as the downtown businesses uh, our downtown bia and chamber of commerce both recently submitted letters of concern to mayor and council about the the fallout effects of this and this is this goes back to the point that i was trying to make earlier of our recognizable four by six block downtown core uh, these businesses have been pummeled by the excessive costs that they have to now incur to put in the security measures needed, the loss of revenue from clients who have either experienced themselves or heard stories through social media or have been accosted or aggressively panhandled by individuals who will now 
say, I will not shop in downtown Maple Ridge or I will not take my children to downtown Maple Ridge because of this. So these are the, the fallout effects that we're experiencing socially, our children and youth and seniors. And our, we're known as a community of young families. People come here to raise their families. Now, those families and even their pets cannot be left out in our city parks, especially Memorial Peace Park, our central hub uh, of our downtown, because of the fear that they would be exposed to paraphernalia, to persons who are um, experiencing an overdose, possibly dying right before their eyes. I don't see a a positive uh, outcome if our children and youth are being exposed to these traumatic events, quite frankly. So where do we go from here? What would you want to see and what can we see for this area? We are in desperate need of this the treatment component that's been lacking. Uh, recently, myself and the mayor and council, I proposed a motion to the United, uh, sorry, the Union uh, of British Columbian Municipalities, and the council has uh, approved that of per, uh, of having the province provide treatment on demand for individuals that are ready to come out of the grips of addictions. To okay, no, I appreciate that. Support. And I think you did a good job of summing up the problem and the concern in the area. I'm in use of Maple Ridge City Councilor. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you for having me this morning. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Before the break, we heard from Maple Ridge City Councillor Ahmed Youssef talking about the problems with Royal Crescent Modular. And there have been problems since it came in under the NDP government back in 2018, despite the concerns of businesses and residents in the area. It is a case study in what good intentions can or what can happen to good intentions when things are not fully realized in terms of the other part of the equation. And that other part of the equation is dealing with those very issues that help lead to those being on the streets without homes or looking for housing. Also concerned about this is BC United leader Kevin Falcon, who has gone on Twitter asking a very good question. There was a report into the problems in this one case that was supposed to be out. We understand it's completed now, but where is that report? It hasn't been released. Let's bring in Kevin Falcon. Good to have you with us this morning. Well, thanks very much for having me, Bruce. Boy, uh, we're looking at a dozen deaths that we know of uh, at this one project, Uh, crime in the area, some really big concerns. We all understand the need for supportive housing, but what are you seeing with this equation that's missing? Well, I'm seeing the same thing that we've seen, frankly, at other places right across the province. There's a pattern here, and the pattern is that the uh, government, the NDP government, says to the local communities, oh, don't worry, Uh, this is supportive housing. There will be all these supports there for these folks. The communities have wisened up to the fact that that uh, often, in most cases, is not the case at all. And uh, so in the community of Maple Ridge, they fought very hard to try and stop this. But, of course, uh, David Eby overrode them, um, you know, brought in an injunction to clear the local community members that were protesting the construction of this Royal Crescent Modular Housing. Uh, They forced it in. And then it turns out that the community was exactly right. There was allegations of rampant criminality amongst the staff and the uh, residents. There was huge negative impacts in the surrounding community, mostly seniors, by the way, 
uh, including a, a daycare center, just kitty corner to the site. And, uh, and, and that has continued. And so David Eby was required as housing minister. He uh, quietly ordered a review into the claims of death, violence and criminality that were rampant at the location. And we know that report's been issued. Uh, it, it, the government's sitting on that report. And uh, I've come up against this before with David Eby. Uh, we saw this with BC Housing, where he sat on several reports that were very, very damning on BC Housing and on Interior Housing, the, the uh, nonprofit that was managing the housing. And, of course, uh, it turned out that there was literally, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars being wasted. Lives were lost. There was, you know, um, situations where basic, uh, you know, um, Man- sorry, basic management uh, wasn't being uh, taken care of at a lot of these facilities. There were no sprinklers that were operating. They had empty, uh, you know, fire extinguishers, et cetera. So, but they didn't release that until the pressure became so great. And even then, uh, he denied that there was some reports and then had to acknowledge and sometimes minutes later that, yes, okay, indeed, that report does exist. Uh, and yes, that report is also very damning. So I just think that it's part of this uh, lack of transparency and just being open with the public about what is going on at these facilities that don't have proper supports uh, and are creating huge chaos in the communities, as you heard by uh, Councillor uh, uh, Youssef. Well, the spotlight is now on, and the report will be coming out. There's no doubt about that because, you know, people are asking the question now. When that report does come out, what would you expect to see and what needs to be done? Sure. Well, what I expect to see is that, uh, sure enough, it will confirm that there has been uh, lack of oversight, that there's been rampant criminality, that there's been impacts on the community, uh, that there has been, uh, you know, unnecessary deaths uh, and the other things that we see happening. So what has to be done? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that the approach the government's been taking, as we've been pointing out from the very beginning, uh, is is absolutely going in the wrong direction in terms of results. So what they're doing is they're, they're buying these motels. They significantly overpay for them. That's a whole other issue. Then what they do is they warehouse people with severe mental health and addiction issues without any decent proper supports. And as a result of that, these folks are creating chaos in the surrounding community. So what we have said is that under a BC United government led by Kevin Falcon, we're going to do a couple of big changes. First shift is we're going to expand a modernized Riverview with 24-7 care so that those folks with severe mental health issues can be compassionately removed from the streets and put into 24-7 care where they can get the proper psychiatric and medical attention they need and deserve. That's number one. Number two is we're not going to go down the path the NDP is going with their reckless decriminalization, publicly supplied addictive drugs, where they're handing out free drugs to people that are already struggling with addiction. We are going to move towards treatment first, uh, where treatment is free and that our first choice is to help people get better. Okay. And that is a huge shift in direction from where we're going right now. You know, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask uh, this question right now, because there is new buzz that we may not be waiting for another provincial election, that David Eby may uh, bring in one sooner than expected. Is BC United prepared right now to go to the polls with uh, issues like this and all the others that we've been hearing about? Well, first of all, um, of course, we'll be prepared to go to the polls whenever we have to. And, and uh, these will be issues that we will certainly be talking about. But, but look, David Eby has said on at least a dozen occasions 
uh, and he's been asked this multiple times by reporters, and he has said uh, that he is not going to have an election until the fixed election date, which is in law of October 2024. And I think at some point, uh, you know, for him to now change direction would would really raise serious questions about his character and his credibility. So uh, I, I don't anticipate that it'll be anything other than the fixed election date. Uh, I choose to actually, uh, you know, almost believe the premier. But look, we're going to do everything we can to make sure we're ready, regardless of when that happens. And we're going to make sure we're talking about the fact that if you care at all about results, whether in healthcare, which are the worst we've ever seen, whether in cancer care, where we're sending 20% of our patients down south to the U.S., whether it's in housing, where we're getting the worst results we've ever seen. I understand. And there is quite a list there, Kevin Falcon. But for time, we'll have to cut it short at that. BC United leader Kevin Falcon, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Mike is off. Bruce Claggett in the guest host chair. Well, the port strike in BC is now over. Good news, certainly, for the economy. But now what? Well, let's start with Nita Garchu of Global News. Cargo operations at British Columbia ports are set to be restored quickly as the workers' strike has come to an end on its 13th day. A statement from the employer announced a tentative four-year deal recognizing the skills and efforts of BC's waterfront workforce. No details have been made public with the agreement subject to ratification by both parties. Business groups are welcoming the news but caution what's ahead. A joint statement from the Federal Labour and Transport Minister says deals like this made between parties at the collective bargaining table are the best way to preserve the long-term stability of Canada's economy, but we do not want to be back here again. This does set a precedent for actually bargaining at the table. But some Labour experts accuse business groups of not acting in good faith given how quickly they called for back-to-work legislation. When any province, any territory wants to raise the minimum wage, they all cry out and say, no, no, we can't afford it. And the government should inter- in- shouldn't interfere in the economy. And the minute workers take some power back, they're like, oh, government, please help us. The union and the employer were given 24 hours to review recommendations ordered by Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan before deciding on the deal. Some 7,400 B.C. port workers walked off the job on July 1st. The work stoppage affecting about 30 ports in B.C., including Canada's largest, the Port of Vancouver, disrupted billions in trade and demanding attention at this week's Premier's meetings. Workers need to be treated fairly uh, and the uh, issue at the port uh, cannot drag on because it has a profoundly damaging impact across the country on workers that are also trying to feed their families right now. Key issues for the union were wages and cost of living, contracting outside work and automation. Labour peace seems to have been achieved as efforts now aim to restore the reputation of Canada's largest gateway. Reputation and now the question of what's next? Well, Annie Darmouth is the BC Alberta Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and she joins us. Annie Dormuth, so now this is the time to clear that backlog and get shipments moving, I guess? Well, definitely, you know, a nearly two-week disruption such as this on the B.C. ports and uh, along the coast of B.C. will take time to, of course, get those shipping containers uh, off and running into their destination across Canada and wherever else they're intended to go to. 
Um, when we had our press conference with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and everything like that, I think one of my fellow colleagues said that for every closure that happened throughout these kind of uh, two weeks here, it'll take two to three days for one day to actually get uh, back to normal operations and clear everything. So um, although it is good news that there is a settlement out there right now and uh, and everything like that, it will take a lot of time to get those supply chains back and running. I heard that one too, Annie. Two to three days for every one day. What does that mean? How come so long? Well, it's simply because for, for the duration of it, for one thing, and the fact that the courts, I believe that, again, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade estimates that $9 billion, uh worth of trade has been disrupted because of this. So, I mean, there are a lot of cargo ships out there right now. Um, and, of course, it will take time to uh, clear everything out and uh, get it all moving again. Your members of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, of them, which ones were hardest hit and are still hard hit by this? Well, definitely, you know, we heard from we heard from small businesses across the entire country, everything from, you know, a shop owner in uh, Ontario that was looking for some back-to-school supplies to a seal manufacturer in Alberta and an agriculture business uh, right here in B.C. Um, all of those types of stories is what we were hearing from businesses that were disrupted by the strike. Uh, however, um, there are a couple of key industries that, of course, were kind of more negatively impacted, uh, chiefly among those uh, retail manufacturing and wholesale. A lot of people don't realize how much retail manufacturing and wholesale there is in Canada still. It's a big part of the economy, isn't it? It's a huge part of the economy. Like I said, I mean, uh, uh, the, the shopkeeper in Ontario to manufacturing agriculture, I mean, this the, this strike had, had implications for many, many small businesses. Um, but definitely, of course, um, you know, what keeps our economy open, I would have to say, is uh, is kind of those key sectors of uh, manufacturing, wholesale, and retail. We're talking with Andy Dormuth, BC Alberta Director for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Andy, how do we avoid these type of strikes in the future? Well, you know, we, we've seen the disruption that this has caused, you know, throughout this nearly two weeks in BC. It's happened to similar larger ports uh, out on the eastern coast, like the port of Montreal. Uh, to really avoid this once again, um, I do think that the federal government needs to strongly consider uh, to make our ports an essential service, just of course, given their importance to keeping the overall Canadian economy going. What sort of uh, lobbying or efforts are you having as the CFIB in talking with the federal government to make this happen? Well, those talks are just kind of preliminary right now. Um, I think that our federal team, of course, in Ottawa will be having those conversations with the federal government to avoid such a, uh, such a disruption uh, such as what we saw um, in D.C. How can we keep things running next time? Well, hopefully, you know, I would have to say maybe quicker action from the federal government. Um, I think we are all, you know, breathing a fresh, uh, breathing a sigh of relief that a settlement has been made. Uh, however, many question where was where the federal government was, you know, a week ago. Um, there seems to be more quicker. There was seems to be quicker action when it came to the Port of Montreal strike. And many are questioning why it took a little bit longer for the Port of BC here. What do you think? Um, I, I have uh, that would be a question for the federal government. Um, I think again, uh, now the focus just needs to be getting our supply chain moving. Where are we in Canada right now with the supply chain? Well, definitely we are just starting to see kind of, I would have to say, that recovery from the disruptions of the of the pandemic, of course. 
Um, you know, the the ongoing nearly two week strike in the uh, on the coast of BC uh, was definitely another blow to that. Um, and what no one wanted really was what we saw um, during the pandemic, where you know the impact would trickle down to consumers in the form of even higher inflation that no one can possibly uh, afford right now. Is it a major issue right now, or are we coming out of the worst of it? I would have to say we're coming out of the worst of the impacts of the pandemic, but again, uh, you know, the prolonged strike that we saw with the Port of Vancouver um, will definitely take some time to uh, to get operations back to kind of those normal uh, normal levels. Annie, one, one of the things that I saw so much in the past couple of days mentioned was reputation of our port. And that's something that uh, many business leaders have suggested it's been hurt, it's been damaged. What do we do in terms of getting that reputation back in fa- if, in fact, you think it has been damaged? Well, I do think that for how long it went on for that, yes, Canada's uh, economic, economic reputation was damaged. Um, one of those ways I think that the federal government can repair that and to provide assurances to the global economy that, yes, uh, Canada is Canada is a place to do business is perhaps look at that um, at that essential service legislation. Is Canada competitive in terms of its own ports? Um, I, I wouldn't have those exact numbers. Um, I know that there are a lot of goods that travel between, uh, you know, both ports on the east and west coast of BC. Uh, you know, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade did estimate that throughout this ongoing strike that $9 billion worth of trade has been disrupted. Where do we go from here? What are you going to do as an organization now? Well, uh, hopefully we'll just have to carefully watch to ensure that, you know, the supply chains are moving and, of course, our members aren't having uh, any more impact on them. Hey, thanks for spending this part of your Friday morning with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Happy weekend ahead. Well, here is something that we need to take a look at. There is a vicious cycle, mental disorders causing the very stress that fuels them. It's part of a team finding coming out at UBC, part of what makes depression so hard to overcome, according to this team and their findings, is that people with depression tend to behave in ways that lead to even more stress in their lives, and that stress in turn fuels mental illness. Well, joining us is Dr. Katerina Renick. She is a postdoctoral researcher in the Depression, Anxiety, and Stress Lab at UBC and is here to talk about her team's findings. Thanks so much for joining us. Very important topic. And do I have it right? This is really a vicious circle? Yes, absolutely. So what we found here is that stress and mental disorders really feed each other over time so that people with mental disorders tend to behave in ways that lead to the very stress that really perpetuates mental disorders over time. And we're finding this not just for depression, which is something we've known about for some time, but we've actually found that we're seeing this across mental disorders. Um, So things like anxiety, personality disorders, substance use, and others. You know, there is a saying, uh, he or she is the cause of their own problems. So from any saying, I would imagine it comes from a little bit of reality. And I wonder if that's what happens in people in general and those with mental disorders specifically. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to know that this this phenomenon, we refer to this as the stress generation phenomenon, happens with everybody. So we all generate some stress in our lives. You know, anytime, you know, you might choose to have a, you know, an important but difficult conversation with someone or to take on a new project. But what we're seeing is that this happens even more so in the lives of people with mental disorders and that this is due to the nature of of their illness. So what we did is we looked at stressors that people actually played some role in contributing to. So things like getting into a conflict or maybe putting off something at work versus ones that people couldn't really have contributed to. Um, Something like being in a natural disaster. And we're seeing that people with mental disorders are experiencing more of these sort of self-generated stressors. So that suggests that they're actively generating more stress in their lives and that this is perpetuating uh, the disorders and contributing to why some of these disorders can be so long lasting. That's interesting. So I guess we're talking about escalation versus de-escalation when a situation arises. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So as we say, it creates this sort of vicious cycle. And this is really important because Part of what makes mental disorders so costly to the healthcare system, to our economy, to individuals' well-being is how chronic and how long-lasting they are. And so we're starting to understand that it's really, that stress is really playing this really important and key role and that it's something that we're going to want to to target even better in our intervention. Now, you talk about this feedback loop being initially thought to be unique to depression, but it goes far beyond that. Where did we start Mm -hmm. in looking at depression and where did we end up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as I say, we know that it's been an issue, um, you know, that, that sort of where this, this research came from is the depression literature. And people, there was kind of some disagreement about, you know, to what degree this, this affects all these other mental disorders that, you know, where we know that stress is important as well. And we're finding that this, you know, as I say, a stress generation phenomenon seems to be pretty universal. So it's important across different diagnoses, but it's also important for different people sort of across background. So we saw that these effects happen for people from different racial backgrounds, uh, from different geographic areas, and across genders as well. So something that um, is really important for for scientists and for clinicians and for people in the public to be aware of and to, to start talking about. You mentioned that there are different groups that are more susceptible. How come and who are those groups? Mm-hmm. So the groups that we we're more susceptible to this effect. We're younger folks, so children, adolescents, and younger adults. We think that part of this could be due to the fact that there's just a lot more transitions at those ages where people are sort of choosing their social networks, their partner, making really big decisions about their education or about their careers and, and all those sorts of things. There's lots of kind of opportunities um, for, for people to act in ways that might lead to more stress in their lives. Um, So we know that among those folks, this is particularly important, although stress generation is occurring among older people too. Now, the impacts of this must be widespread right across your life, Uh, relationships, work, education. What are you seeing? Yeah, so we see... um, we see that this is quite, you know, a widespread general phenomenon. So um, people are generating stress across domains of their lives. 
in some cases, we see that it's particularly important in the social realm of people's lives, um, specifically for disorders like depression and anxiety, where people might actually be generating even more social stressors. And those are also the social stressors that, when they occur, tend to make us feel more down or more anxious. Um, so this really, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, yeah, so this really suggests that um, that that we need to be focusing on on sort of changing um, some of the underlying patterns or behaviors that could be leading to those. And in another project that we conducted with our collaborat- collaborators at the University of Rochester and the University of Western Ontario, we found that there's particular behaviors like social behaviors, negative thoughts, avoidance, and other specific patterns and personal characteristics that seem to be specifically driving greater stress in people's lives. I think an understanding from what I'm hearing here, having a better understanding of this circle, this cycle, may help us in dealing with those people we know who have this happening in their lives. Uh, What can we take back from this, the average person, and then what can, second part of the question, what can Mm -hmm. some of the people that have to deal with it in professions, medical profession, law enforcement, what can they take back from it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this tells us that people actually can change the amount of stress that they experience in their lives. People have some power over that. And we can, we can start to focus on that through our treatment, so things like cognitive behavioral therapy, where we might start being able to shift some of the patterns or the behaviors or the types of thinking that can lead to greater stress. So I think it, it, this is a really empowering message that, that we have some really exciting and valuable opportunities to try to treat a really broad range of mental disorders more effectively. And what's exciting about that is that by targeting stress generation, we can, we can develop approaches to treatment that could be relevant to many, many different people with many different problems. I know in the treatment of anxiety and depression, usually it's two parts, and quite often it's medication and also counseling. Uh, mm-hmm. And you mentioned CBT in there with the, uh, with the counseling side. Is that true also with uh, your research, or do you find that one side of this is more effective than the other? Yeah, that, our, our work was focused more on the phenomenon itself. So we know that, um, treat, that this has really important implications for treatment, but actually looking at the different treatments and comparing how they work for targeting this the stress generation phenomenon, this vicious cycle, was outside of the scope of this current work. But I think that's a really important and interesting question and definitely a next step for the field to look at. Okay, but in the meantime, potential solutions? Yep, absolutely. So I think we can we can start to, to talk more about stress generation. Um, people can talk to their, their clients, people in general public can learn about this phenomenon so they can start taking steps to making changes in their lives to reduce the amount of stress they have and to start to break out of that vicious cycle. Give me an example. How would that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one way is um, for people to start to, to learn about how some stressors might be related to some of, their, some of the ways that they might think, some of the behaviors they might have, 
um, some of the environments that they might be in, and then start to work to problem solve and to find out ways to shift out of some of those patterns. Sometimes that can be a really tricky process. And I think that's when seeing a therapist, like a psychologist or a counselor, can be in a, a really important step for doing that work. As a layperson, the thing that pops to my mind would be an anxiety attack. And during an anxiety attack, you can, I would imagine, end up in this cycle. If you are to take a look at a situation where somebody is in an anxiety attack, how would you as a person not, you know, caring about the person, but not being the one suffering the anxiety attack help out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really important to be supportive for those people and to understand that those are really difficult situations to be in. Um, And I think a really important piece is not assigning blame to the person. We all experience stress in our lives. Many stressors are related to to things that, you know, we've, we've chosen to engage in, things we've chosen to do. And so I think it's really important to be supportive of the person, be there and ask them what they need from you as well without um, kind of bringing in any sort of, uh, well, I told you so, or, or any sort of um, blaming of that person. I guess where I'm going with this, and you kind of, kind of touched on it, but if I was, mm. say, a boss in a workplace and I noticed somebody was involved in what appeared to me as a layperson, but a boss, uh, having to deal with it. One of these cycles, what do I need to know in talking with that person to kind of break them out of it? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think that's where it can be useful to talk with a person, get their perspective, and, and come to, together in a collaborative way to try to problem solve and figure out how can we work together to reduce the amount of of stress that's happening? And how can we face some of these issues together? Do we take some things off your plate? Do we delegate some things? Do we find ways to help um, work through that problem? And I think coming together as a team is really helpful in these kinds of situations. I should mention, like in our, our research, we didn't, look at, you know, these specific, um, you know, methods for, for breaking the cycle. But we know from, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy literature that, that those kinds of strategies can be really helpful. We're talking with Dr. Katerina Rennick. She is a postdoctoral researcher in the Depression, Anxiety, and Stress Lab at UBC. Where does the research go from here? Great question. So, as I know, we we started uh, we've we've conducted another um, a large study where we sort of went beyond just mental disorders and we looked at all different types of risk factors in people's lives that could lead to them experiencing more of these self-generated stressors. And um, that was with uh, led by my colleague Angela Santi at the University of Rochester, and um, we found a number of different factors leading towards greater stress. And I think what's important now is to get 
even more fine-grained and understand sort of the different pathways from different thoughts and different behaviors to different types of stressors, both within people with mental disorders, but other people as well. We know that this affects, you know, all of us, you know, within the general population. And then I think the next step after that is designing specific interventions for changing the cycle, breaking out of the cycle and adapting it and actually testing how do those interventions work? Do they work as well for people with depression and anxiety? Can they also work for people with substance use disorders, personality disorders? And and actually testing to see, does this give us anything above and beyond our current, you know, best practice techniques? Interesting research to follow. Yeah. That will be useful things to to pursue down the line, for sure. If you want to start uh, with some of the research here and take a look at uh, what's happening, the website to go to, of course, is at the University of British Columbia. The Google search, a vicious cycle, mental disorders cause the very stress that fuels them. Dr. Katrina Rennick, thanks so much for your time. Very interesting subject. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith and tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy Brar is joining us as we start to close out the very first week of Threads, the new social media channel that is taking on Twitter. Andy, you know, boy, it's uh, by popularity, by the numbers, it's doing pretty well. What are your thoughts one week into it? Well, the best way to look at it, Bruce, is just to put it into context because Threads in less than a week has uh, amassed 100 million active users. Now, to give context, just earlier, uh, if you look at Twitter and Facebook, it took them more than four years to reach 100 million users. Instagram reached 100 million in two years, which was pretty impressive. Then TikTok came along and did it in nine months. And then earlier this year, as everyone knows, ChatGPT came on the scene and it reached 100 million users in two months. And in that six months later, Threads comes and does it in less than a week. So it is the fastest growing social media app of all time, probably the most popular app launch of all time. However, and this is a big but, Bruce, the engagement has gone down. It was all about FOMO. People were like, wow, this new thing from Instagram, I'm going to try it out. It's an alternative to Elon Musk's Twitter. Um, People downloaded it, but the thing is, will people continue to use it? That's the big question in the tech world that we're looking at right now. Well, that's it. You can rise very quickly, but did you peak too soon? And uh, I don't know. I've I've enjoyed uh, my first little introduction to it. Only sent out, I think, one tweet but uh, certainly enjoying, no, actually I sent out a couple more, just taking a look at it. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that I have to wonder if it's more that people like this threads or they just hate Twitter and Elon Musk. Well, that's a lot of the reasons why people were trying out threads, because before threads came on, there was really no alternative. Of course, we had Mastodon, you had um, you know, all these other different types of apps that were trying to gain traction, but it, none of them did. Then you have a juggernaut like Meta come into the scene, salivating at the lips because they're looking at this opportunity with so many people being frustrated with Elon Musk. 
they decided, you know what, let's make an alternative. And we knew this in the tech world that they were working on something like this for a long time. I just didn't realize, Bruce, that they would just copy uh, Twitter almost identically in terms of the look and feel of it. But that's what Meta does. You know, there's two types of companies that you see in tech. You have the innovators and the imitators. And Meta, even though they started with Facebook, they are imitating everyone. They, they're watching the playbooks of TikTok, Snapchat. They're taking all of those features and putting them into their apps. And they did the same thing with threads. The big question is, you have to have more of a value proposition other than just saying, well, it's like Twitter, but there's no Elon here. Because we have Mark Zuckerberg. And Mark Zuckerberg is really no better than Elon Musk. He knew long ago that social media was, was harming children and teens. And they were just kind of hiding it. And then they knew it internally. And we saw that. So, you know, it's like pick your poison between these two apps. Or here's a here's a, a novel idea. Just leave social media altogether. And for a lot of people, you know, it, when you have more choice like this, it's a time to reflect just how much time you're spending. Because we certainly can't spend time on Twitter and on threads. That's just not well, sustainable. And that's a whole other conversation and I think it's one we're going to have to entertain in the years ahead, IRL in real life and getting back to that. But, uh, you know, the one thing I hate about threads is the timeline being missing because as a news guy, that's really important to me. Yeah, well, as a news guy, you're not going to like what the head of Threads and Instagram has said. They're trying to change it for a little bit from, from Twitter. And one thing they're going to do is try to not make it the place to go for news and politics, because that's what really people go to Twitter for. And that's what's created so much division within Twitter, because people are kind of arguing with each other. But you have to wonder what the emergency service is. Now they have these two choices. Yep. You can either go Twitter or you can go with, with Meta. But with the new Online News Act in Canada, now things get even more tricky because where are we going to get our news? If, if, if you can't get your news on Meta, on Facebook, well, then they're certainly not going to allow that on threads. So what, what are, why are we on threads? It <laughs> certainly is fractured day? now, more fractured than it has been before. Uh, bottom line in the next 10 seconds before we let you go, is it going to be the fidget sp spinner of the uh, social media world or do you think it's going to be around for a few years? That's what we're looking for, Bruce. Will it be like Google Plus of social media? Because Google, we have to remember, is not in social media. They tried and they failed. The, will the same thing happen with Meta? Time will only tell. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.